Hey, so before we get started on this episode, are you interested in joining an impact investment circle? I'm thinking about organizing a group of people who want to go on an impact investment learning journey together, and I'm just testing the waters to see how much interest there is in one. Uh, But the idea would be that interested group of people would come together, we'd pool our capital, research investment options, conduct due diligence, discuss how to measure impact and manage our impact, and together decide how to put our dollars to work. If you're interested in learning more or you want to express express your interest, visit davidoleary.ca slash impact dash investing dash circle. Also, there's a couple new job opportunities up on the community section of my website. So davidoleary.ca slash community. Uh, The Upside Foundation here in Toronto is looking for somebody and the Unlimited Foundation based out of the UK both have job openings in the impact space. And lastly, I'll mention that the Skoll World Forum, which is normally a very exclusive event that you have to apply to attend and also quite expensive event to attend, has gone entirely virtual this year and completely free given COVID. So highly recommend you check it out. It happens, there's a week in April, I can't remember the exact dates, but again, this information's on the community section of my website. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Welcome to episode 25 of the Impact Investing Podcast. The richest 26 people on Earth own as much wealth as the poorest 3.8 billion. The wealthiest 10% control 84% of the world's wealth. Meanwhile, 4.8 billion people fight for just 2% of the world's wealth. Reducing wealth inequality is possibly the biggest moral imperative of our time. It also happens to be one of the largest threats to global peace and geopolitical stability. My guest today is John Chell, Managing Director of Social Capital Partners. Social Capital Partners looks to bring market-based approaches to solving complex, systemic social problems like wealth inequality. The organization has tackled a variety of problems through different approaches over the years. And what stands out most about Social Capital Partners is its commitment to impact. It's made numerous radical pivots in its approach over the years as its staff experiment, test, and learn. And for a full rundown of the organization's fascinating history, listen to episode one of the podcast where I chat with Social Capital Partner founder, Bill Young. In this episode, John and I discuss the organization's latest pivot and the publication of its newest public policy discussion paper titled Building an Employee Ownership Economy. During our chat, we dive into the importance of employee ownership as a channel for distributing wealth more equitably the necessary conditions for employee ownership to thrive, and differences between the Canadian and U.S. environments. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end when we discuss the types of organizations that are well-suited to using the employee ownership trust structure. And with that, let's get on to the podcast. So, John, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me, David. I've been looking forward to having this conversation for a little while. Give everybody just a brief introduction to who you are and what you do. Sure. My name is John Shell. I'm the um, managing director and I'm a partner at Social Capital Partners, where we focus on broadening opportunity, right? So so, uh, whether it be employment opportunity or ownership opportunity, I'm sure we'll we'll talk about the difference between those things. But but, uh, Social Capital Partners was founded about 20 years ago, and I joined Bill three years ago. So Bill Bill founded it and then, then was generous enough to bring me on as a partner a couple years ago. Awesome. And so for those who aren't where the first episode of this podcast is with Bill. The whole conversation's about how the organization has been, you know, tackling social issues and how it's had to pivot several times. Pretty meaningful pivots too, in terms of its time and attention and focus. And I was kind of in admiration of that during the <laughs> during the episode that you know people talk about this idea of testing and pivoting and all that, but to, it's usually tweaks on a slight yeah. reframe, a slight adjustment. These are real you know, wholesale 
changes in focus for you. And and you've had a, another recent one, it sounds like. So we're going to kind of dive in and talk about that. Did you meet Bill through Monitor? I didn't. I met okay. Bill in 2008. I think it was 2008 when I was working on this project where we, it was just, it was like this extracurricular project. I think I was I, I wasn't at McKinsey anymore. I was doing the vet thing. And we were taking on a, a company in uh, Africa. We hadn't chosen where yet we were going to, you know, which country we were going to work in, but a consulting project where we would go and, and, and bring some business school grads and try to help a company with a specific objective so that they would be able to, you know, better succeed, I suppose. We ended up choosing a company in Kenya that made this very enriched maternal food, right? So, so a, a food that would be very supportive of a maternal diet and help them think through production and marketing and all of that. Anyway, we needed to fundraise for that. And we did a bunch of fundraising on our own, but we were struggling to get anyone else interested. And a friend of mine said, you should go talk to Bill Young. And so I said, I don't know who that is. And they said, well, this is who that is. And, and here's uh, contact details. And so I wrote him out of the blue, said, I'd love to talk to you. He said, sure, no problem. Uh, we booked a, a meeting. We went into his office, had never met him before. And we met for about 45 minutes at the end of the meeting. He says, sure. I said, sure, what? <laughs> and he said, sure, I'll fund your trip. Uh, and that was that. And so, you know, that, you know, I, I had yet to um, experience the, the Bill Young generosity, but I think a number of other people had. And it was, you know, he said, I, I don't, that's not my area of interest, what you're doing, but I invest in people that I like and I like you. So I'm going to uh, support you. And, and, you know, we, we didn't really stay in touch that much to, even after that. I mean, we, we, the project happened. I kind of I walked, you know, explained to him what happened and, and, and I kept in touch with him while the project was going on. Uh, but then we fell out of touch. And when I got back in touch with him in 2017, after coming back to town, it was on a completely different topic. He had no memory of me at all. Didn't remember the, the, the project, didn't remember me ever going to see him, didn't remember any of that. So, you know, we reconnected on a completely other, other reason. Anyway, so that's, that's, how I, that's how I met Bill, although I don't think he would say that he met me that way because he doesn't remember right. me. Right. That's, a, that's amazing. Did you, where, where, out of curiosity, was that Plumpy Nut? Is that what you're manufacturing? No, no. It was a, it was a company called Insta. Insta was, okay. was the name. It was a, it didn't really have a retail presence. What it did is it made this uh, uh, porridge called Uji, which was a staple of the Kenyan diet, for use uh, in, in distribution by the UN to areas of conflict or crisis. Uh, and they did so, that, and but they had in the background developed this product and they didn't know what to do with it. They said, we know this is good. We don't know how to distribute it. And, you know, can you help us think through that? Because they, they, almost all their production was so single sourced by the UN. Plumpy Nut was an, was an alternative, but a spectacularly more expensive. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 you know, our thing was to fill a market more in, you know, lower, you know, really low income areas of uh, the capital. Very cool. Yeah. And my wife's a nutritionist in, in this context. And so I'm sensitive to this, this area. Well, I, haven't, I haven't thought of Plumpy Nut, you yeah. know, literally in 12 yeah. years. Uh, yeah. But that's, yeah. Uh, there you go. So let's talk a little bit about, you've had a big change as I kind of alluded to in direction. So talk a little bit about like, where were you focused and what's the change? Sure. So Social Capital Partners was founded in 2001 uh, to tackle employment, right? Effectively, what the goal was is how do we help people facing barriers to employment uh, get good full-time jobs? What are the barriers to them getting those jobs? How do you overcome those barriers? How do you make that sustainable? All with a view to Bill's constant refrain that, you know, the wheel of fortune spins for some people and not for others. And, you know, that leads to inequality. That inequality can't be fixed uh, through government programs alone. So how do we how do we create other programs that can reduce that inequality through creating opportunity? And for you know pretty much the entire history of social capital partners, that's that's what we've done. A few years ago, we started talking about wealth inequality a little more broadly, 
and said, okay, you know, we've been working on this income stuff for a long time. You know, what is the actual issue that we're trying to solve? And are we thinking about it the right way? And I think we decided that we, you know, we were thinking about it the right way, but we were missing something as well. And that wealth inequality was commonly thought of as income inequality, right? So people generally talk about income inequality and not wealth inequality. But if you talk about wealth inequality, which is far more important, that has income as a component and then ownership or capital as a component. And even if you fixed income inequality and didn't fix capital inequality, inequality would continue to grow, right? And, and there's, no, there's no way around that because inequality, uh, because capital is concentrated, is so heavily concentrated already, more concentrated than it has been since the 1920s, right? Before the, the, the crash and the depression and continuing to, to become more concentrated. If you don't fix that, you can't fix inequality. And so we started to talk more about that and thought, you know, there are anyone who cares about inequality, almost all of them focus on the income side, which is fine, right? Like not only fine, it's good. You know, so, so charities, nonprofits, governments who think about inequality say, okay, well, let's focus on the employment side, you know, because that's where we think we can have the biggest impact. Impact uh, governments think about tax rates, right? So middle-class tax cuts, they think about universal basic income, they think about, you know, other income side efforts to minimum wage to address inequality. And one of the reasons why social capital partners pivot so much is because we have the freedom to do that. Right. So one of the great things about what Bill's done is he's created this organization that doesn't rely on anyone else for funding, doesn't rely on anyone else for for approval. We we keep it very small in terms of our, our, our footprint in order to keep it that way. And we said, well, if if the people who if everyone else is focused on this thing and we think that ownership and capital is really important, well, we should be the ones to focus on ownership and capital. Right. Even though we're doing pretty good work on the income side. We should we should focus on on ownership and capital, and then and so we started uh, uh, thinking about what that might look like. And so over the last couple of years, we've been doing that and gone off in a bunch of different directions, most of which have been dead ends, to be honest with you. And that's okay; that's sort of part of the process as well. But one of the things that we really liked was employee ownership, and specifically uh, the U.S. version of employee ownership. Uh, because of all of its benefits, I'm sure we're going to go into that on this call. But 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 the results of 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 what exists in 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 the U.S., which is very different from what exists in Canada, so staggering in terms of of the impact that we said this is where we're going to dig in, and it isn't only there. I mean, but 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 sort of employee ownership is the main area that we're going to dig in, and then we've come up with a philosophy on how we think about ownership, how we think about how we can engage. In ownership, but the objective here is if we can't, or the strategy is if we can't uh, broaden ownership, uh, we can't uh, affect wealth inequality. And so, what we're going to do with almost all of our time is figure out what are the different platforms that you know that exist that will help us broaden ownership, and we're going to work on those platforms. Hmm. So I want to qualify something a little bit. You said, you know, most of the work you, you've done was, were dead ends. That, that just for background, if those of you who haven't listened to the first episode, that like applies a really high bar. I know some of the early work around employment opportunities and kind of work with, you know, franchises like, I'm trying to remember the auto. Greener Ross. And, yeah, uh, Greener Ross and all yeah. that. Like led to, I think, kind of thousands of, job creation for 500. 500. Okay. Yeah. Still like the meaningful amount of job creation. It's just the type of scale, the type of impact you want to have is at a scale that we're talking about massive kind of national scale rather than local individualized. I think if most of us helped 500 people, we would feel pretty pretty amazing. Right. So just to to give some perspective for maybe those who aren't familiar with social capital partners, there's a pretty high. Well, and I can't point to times where we've had that impact. (laughs) Right. Right. So, so so the, 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 the biggest impact, I mean, the first thing, so as a quick recap, the very first thing social capital partners did was fund and support social enterprises, which went really well. Right, innovation right. challenges, so, right? Like they were yeah, innovation challenges. Challenged. Yeah, that's right. They held innovation challenges, and then you know there, there's kind of four or five examples of social enterprises that still exist today 
that Bill will point to when he talks about that time. And, and they're very successful that, that, you know, weren't necessary. you know, some of them relied on social capital partners to exist and others, we were just supportive, but either way, those things are, are, are going really well. Uh, the other big one was what you were just talking about, which is where we uh, loaned money to small businesses, franchise businesses, in order, in exchange for them hiring from local community uh, service agencies. Uh, so people facing barriers to employment, and then the interest rate would fluctuate based on on, on their success in, in hiring and retaining those employees. And that's the one that led to 500 uh, jobs for people facing barriers to employment, which we're very proud of. And, and then we, tr- but I think with that one, the next step was how do you scale that through governments and banks, which we tried to do for several years and it failed. And that would have been probably the first like national, now we're moving hundreds, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to this specific activity. But part of the, you know, the, the freedom that we have to operate is both a blessing and a curse. The curse is, I mean, if you do something that's sort of okay, or if you do something that, that someone else could do, then you're not really using that freedom appropriately. And, and so that's, that's the bar that we have to, to these things. I mean, unless we can see, so there's a few things, unless we can see how you could scale the intervention uh, to be national, unless you can see, uh, see how the impact could be dramatic, unless you can see partners that could support that, right? Because we don't intend to build our organization to do those things. Uh, unless you could see a path to partnership, people who could support that, then again, it's not a good idea for us. And so we've had a few ideas where we thought, yeah, this could have great impact. Yes, we could do it, but we couldn't see the right partners. We've had ideas along this way where 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 we we thought we had uh, really good partners, but the impact wasn't there. So so you know when when we couldn't find all of the things lining up, we we would call that a dead end, and then we would we would you know kind of uh, publish it. So there's been a few things we published over the last couple of years. I mean, one being you know we spent a lot of time thinking about future of work, right? So if we're gonna if we're gonna help unemployment, how is employment changing? What are the implications of that, and can we be supportive? So we spent a lot of time thinking about that. And in the end, uh, we determined that the most important thing was public policy, right? Like there were things that needed to happen. So either a ton of money poured at a a digital infrastructure that connected jobs, training, and people, that would be far better than the LinkedIn stuff that goes on today, where that's like the best we can do is LinkedIn. So, you know, either it was a big investment in the infrastructure that would allow employment and training and jobs and people to be much better connected, or it was public policy around things that have actually (laughs) proven themselves to be really important in in the COVID era, like a a social safety net that didn't have a ton of holes, right? So, uh, you know, we wrote a bunch of papers about those things and said, here's what we think, you know, here's what we think the most important building blocks are for a more equitable and a safe future of work. But, but as social capital partners, they weren't things that we could do. They, you know, they, there's nothing we could do about it, right? We couldn't build an innovative answer and then have it scaled. It needed, uh, it needed either things that we weren't capable of or weren't experienced at, so we just weren't the right player. So we said, okay, well, here's our view. We spent a lot of time on that. So here's a view, you know, Hopefully someone will take a look at this. And in this case, I think a lot of a lot of people did, but it wasn't for us to push. So that that's that's what happens with our dead ends. And we have a bit of a process that leads us to those conclusions. And so tell me how then you where did you first sort of get onto the idea of employee ownership? And Taylor Seacon, who works at he's one of the only other people, we're a very small team, he's one of the only other people at at our office who has a really interesting background, uh, started uh, modeling out what I think he called it an employee leverage, an ELBO, an employee leverage buyout, what that might look like in the summer of 2018. It was just sort of something he did on the side. So, you know, I, I'm really interested in this. Let me, let me see what it looks like if I apply my very excellent modeling skills at this problem. And it was really interesting. It wasn't, we, it was, we weren't all the way there. There were a lot of issues in terms of, you know, current asset prices for businesses, things that would have made that model challenging, right? To just implement as it was. But we said it was interesting enough for us to try to figure out what employee ownership looks like today in different areas. And and that led us to an investigation of co-ops, 
an investigation of employee ownership around uh, um, the world. And, and it was in that investigation that we found the United States version of the employee share ownership plan uh, or an ESOP, which is very different than the Canadian ESOP. We can get into that. But this U.S. ESOP around which an entire infrastructure had been built, right? So, so very thoughtful tax policy, a very thoughtful uh, structure, which had led to 14 million Americans sharing in $1.4 trillion of wealth at the 6,600 employee-owned companies in the U.S., which dramatically dwarfed employee ownership in any other country. And so, so you know, that, that's how we got to it. And, and we said, look, I mean, if you want to think about a broader distribution of ownership, transitioning to employees in a broad-based way, which is what this plan does, so it's not just for, like, management, which is what Canadian ESOPs are for. It's for everybody. If you if you are able to do that in, a, in an even more skilled way than exists already, I mean you are I mean that is that is the fastest way to broaden ownership, right? So if tomorrow you took every company and you distributed it amongst employees, well, you will have broadened ownership very dramatically. So 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 we saw how it could be very powerful, and we saw how it was already successful, and that set us on this path. And so. So this was sort of it's opportunistic, like Taylor had this idea, was already playing around with it, and you entertained it as a group and then thought, oh, this has legs and some merit here, and let's let's officially change the direction and change our focus as an entire organization. I'm going to put down what I'm doing here on Future of Work, and now I'm... Were you already at the point where you were like, oh, we're looking for our new kind of yeah, direction? Yeah, we, we, had, we had already decided the Future of Work didn't have anything for us okay. to do. So you're actively uh, and so we were actively looking for an ownership idea. Okay. And all of our ideas start exactly like that. Someone says, I have a crazy idea. And then they start to work on it. You know, so, so for what it's worth, our, our process is someone says, I have a crazy idea. And we all say, great. And they go away and, they, and there's a specific uh, template that they use. And they come back with, okay, I have, now I can describe my crazy idea to you. And so we walk through it as a group. And we, we say, okay, this is either worth testing or not worth testing. Uh, if it's worth testing, we go and, 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 and start putting a bunch of stress on that model. So we do a bunch of research. Does it do what we think it does? Are, has it been tried anywhere, et cetera? And then we come back for another yes or no question. Then if, we, if it's still yes, we then send it out to a bunch of people we know to get feedback. I mean, d- does this seem like a good idea? Have you heard about it elsewhere? What are the problems you might find with it? And then finally, we come back and we say, okay, if it's passed all these tests, does it meet our, like, are we the right people to do it? Can we find uh, partnerships that we think make sense? Is it scalable? Like, does it meet all of our criteria? And if yes, then we say, okay, well, this is the one now we're going to try for a while until it fails. And so, and, and every one of our ideas goes through that process. And this, at the time, this wasn't the only thing we were looking at. There were four, four ideas that had met the first bar that we started to test. But this is the one that, you know, that proved to pass all the check marks. So I'm curious, I won't digress too far down this path because I, I want to we'll dive lots into the employee ownership. But, you know, th- it's interesting to me, this this idea of, you know, income and wealth inequality and wealth and income inequality being a subset of wealth inequality. And one of the areas I think when you get into wealth inequality that, that comes up is intergenerational transfers of wealth and in particular intergenerational hoarding of wealth. Do you, is that like an area that you guys thought about, talked about at all? Do you have any kind of thoughts on that? It just, it feels to me a little like a game of Monopoly. And you know, mm-hmm. I imagine a whole bunch of people sitting around playing Monopoly and you're, and I'm watching. So the four of us behind the, the people who are playing, ready to play as soon as they're done and they finish the game and the winner says to one of the players I'm, I'm about to compete against, oh, here, you have all of my money. Yeah. You can start the game with all the money. Like what? That seems outrageously unfair that we're going to compete against each other with this yeah. um, fair advantage. Totally. Look, I think the issue of intergenerational inequality is way broader than that. So I think I think it's I think it's incredibly like this is like the big problem, right? So so some of it is I'm a wealthy person and I'm going to give it to my kids. Right. Some of it is pension funds. Right? Mm-hmm. So 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 much of the wealth in this country mm-hmm. uh, in any country right now or any sort of western country is held by pension funds. On you know, and if you think about who benefits from pension funds, 
you know, in many, many cases, uh, it's older workers, right? Because those pension funds, like especially defined benefits, benefit, defined benefit pension funds don't really exist anymore for the younger generation. So um, you have these promises that have been made to mostly our old people that they're going to get a whole pile of money, right? And, and on an individual basis, it doesn't seem like a whole pile of money. But when you compare it to someone who's 25, it's a whole pile of money. So, so there's this, and, and because they have all the money, right, they are investing it for their own benefit, mm-hmm. right? So you have pension funds that are doing the right thing by their pensioners, but it's not equally distributed uh, throughout society. Then you have housing, right? So because of a whole bunch of reasons, certainly massively influenced by quantitative easing since 2008, asset price inflation, right, not only in the housing market, but also in the business market. So who owns houses? Old people, generally old white people, but old people. Who owns businesses? Again, old people, generally old white people, but old people. So, and all of the the prices of those things have gone up. So if you're, you know, not to mention the fact that it's more expensive to go to school, right? It's more expensive, more or less, to do all of the important things you'd want to do. And the jobs that you have access to are much worse, right? So, so if you add it all up, there's been a, a dramatic shift in not only wealth, but the opportunity to acquire wealth from young people to old people. And, and so in, in a number of different ways, this generational challenge is, is super important. And look, I think a lot of people will say, well, okay, but the old people give it to their kids. And I think those people don't actually think about how old people get right now, (laughs) right? So people die when they're like 90 or 85. And so if you think about someone who has accumulated wealth through things like having a good job, through buying a house in 1977, (laughs) right? And through their pension, dying at the age of 85 they are giving, you know, 20 years from now, say, they're giving that money to somebody who is 60, right, who has had none of those things. And then, and, and, and so, you know, I, I, I think we underestimate the importance of that generational wealth transfer and how broad it is. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, well, listen, in the, in the interest of time, let's move on. Can you give everybody a little bit of background? I alluded to it earlier, but how did you get involved? How did you, what did your sort of career progression look like? And how did it lead you to where you are now? Well, it's been a bit of a roundabout journey. You know, mostly I've been involved in the private sector. Right? Like I, I, I had a used goods store, David, coming out of a very really? unsuccessful undergraduate career, which failed very badly. And then I managed to sneak into a business school by the skin of my teeth uh, and went to business school here in Canada. That's where things started to change a little bit and did well enough to get into a consulting company out of that. And then in 2006, with a buddy of mine who I went to business school with, we started buying veterinary practices here in Canada. So, you know, we are we were going to buy buy veterinary practices and, and uh, run them and try to do a better job at, at managing them than, than veterinarians did. Excuse me. And so we asked, uh, started to build that business. So I, I, you know, that, that industry, which we can talk about, really changed between when I joined it in 2006 and when I left it in 2016 or 2000, yeah, 2016, 2017-ish, in terms of, you know, how it worked and, you know, kind of how wealth was generated in, in the industry. But the upshot is I you know, helped found what's now, I think, either the biggest or second biggest Canadian veterinary services company, and then uh, moved to Australia in 2013. So I married an Australian woman who said we need to go to Australia. And I said, okay, and, and founded what's now the biggest veterinary services company in Australia in 2014. So, so when I came, I came back to Canada in 2016 and thought, okay, this has gone pretty well for me, but I didn't, I didn't see myself doing another thing like that, like another uh, roll up. I was conflicted about the implications of the work I had done in that industry. And, and I think my eyes had been opened in that process to 
how wealth was changing, how, how wealth was concentrating, how private equity was influencing the structure of our economy and how pension funds were influencing uh, the structure of our economy through private equity companies. And, and, and I was worried about that. And I thought, you know, we, while some of these things were good and useful, that the, we were falling out of balance and we needed something to counterbalance what was happening due to, you know, big macro uh, um, shifts that, that were beyond most people's comprehension, certainly beyond my comprehension. But, you know, we're having these impacts on, on the ground floor and on, in regular small business. And so, so I did join Social Capital Partners with that. So, so then, then there's a bit of a process. I, I, I reconnected with Bill and Bill said, why don't you come on board and we can think through these things. And, and I, I was also compelled when I joined Bill about the employment work that, they, that he'd done. So we actually, I actually shelved a bit of this wealth stuff um, that I had been thinking about for a couple of years as we kind of pushed down the future of work path. And then, and then we came back to it. But I, I think that was a very rambling way of answering your question. But I, I spent most of my time in the private sector, had reasonably good success in the private sector, and really wanted to do more thinking about the implications of what I'd learned coming out of that when I joined Bill at SCP. And were you always conscious about these broader type of issues and how you might impact them? Because like your lessons coming out of entrepreneurship just could have been around solely lessons about how to be a better entrepreneur without any regard. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I guess so, right? I mean, I, I don't, I must, must be a little bit, right? I mean, I think I've always been interested in economics and politics and, you know, tried to be thoughtful about what was going on in the world. So I think, and I think, I think I've always had a view that it would be great if one day I could have uh, some freedom to do some creative work in, 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 in addressing some of the issues that I think I've always generally thought existed, but, but hadn't really been engaged in. And, and I, so I've come to all this reasonably late, right? Like, like I, you know, we're now engaged in questions that people have been working on for a long time. So I'm sensitive to the fact that, you know, we're, I'm really a Johnny come lately and all this stuff and that there's a lot, there's so much that I don't know about how to affect some change in these areas. But hopefully the, the, the things that I saw in my entrepreneurial career are helpful in, in, in adding to the mix. Nice. So let's say the employee ownership stuff. You talked a little bit about the importance of that being a, a mechanism for transferring and equalizing wealth. You mentioned specifically that you know the term employee ownership, ESOP, has a different definition in Canada versus the U.S. Can you talk a little bit about specifically what's entailed by that? Yeah, the ESOP in Canada is normally an option plan, right? Yes. That, that is usually available to upper management. You know, I think if you have the, you'll often have a 5% ESOP in a company that goes to management, you know, for hitting certain targets. There are some broader ESOPs, especially in tech companies, right? And that's common in all tech companies across the world, where usually in exchange for uh, receiving something less than your market salary, right, you get some options on shares so that when you become Shopify, for example, as some of the earlier employees and a lot of employees, frankly, at Shopify because they are spectacularly successful, end up with a, with a bunch of ownership of the company. So those are the places where you would commonly see it in Canada. The ESOP in the U.S. is is generally applied to other things. So they have those two ESOPs, right? Those ones that we have. That's fine. In addition, they have this other thing that they call an ESOP, which we tend to call, we generalize to an employee ownership trust. And how it works is, you know, this, this, the U.S. established this thing called an ESOP trust. An ESOP trust is a mechanism for an owner to sell their shares to employees without it costing the employees anything, which is another important distinction to what goes on here in Canada. And so what happens is this ESOP trust takes on debt, right? Uh, um, and so if, if a company is worth, you know, call it 50 million bucks, uh, the owner then uh, will loan $50 million to the company. And, and then get paid back over time through cash flow. And the ESOP trust at that time has no value because it has this debt of $50 million and this equity of $50 million, so the net's to zero. Over time, cash flow pays out the owner and the share price goes up. 
And so those employees pay nothing for those shares at the time that the ESOP is started. Those shares then get allocated to employees over time in a very equitable way. In order, there's a bunch of rules around the ESOPs in the US. They have to be distributed among most employees of the company. I think once you work, usually it's if you work more than a thousand hours a year, you get shares. It gets uh, uh, distributed to the uh, lowest paid employee as well as the highest paid employee with, with sort of a, a formula. And and gets and again, it gets distributed over time. So it's not like I happen to be working at the company when employee ownership happened. And so now I own all this company, you know, part of this company. It's I can join 15 years afterwards and still earn shares in that company. And then I get paid out when I leave. And in the U.S., it's tied to their retirement program. So it's, there's, a, there's a really interesting history behind this, which we could probably go over in 60 seconds. But the, 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 the important things to know here is the U.S. version of this, the employees don't pay up front. So it is accessible, right? You don't need to have wealth in order to participate in this new wealth. It's distributed over time. So employees benefit whether they are there at the time of the, of the sale or not. And the owners get fair market value. So the amount of, of debt that is put into the company will equal, you know, will, will tend to equal the market value of that company as, and, and, and an amount that that company can support and is often supported by a local, like, like a, a, a senior, like a, a bank, like a, like a JP Morgan or in the US, BMO and CIBC actually have lending programs where they lend to these employee ownership trusts, these US ESOPs. Uh, so the owner can take some money home on the day of the transaction. And these things can also happen over time. So I'm probably getting into too much detail here, David, and boring everyone who's listening. But, 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 but an owner can decide to do this succession over a long period of time and slowly lend money to the company and get paid back out. So in the U.S., community-oriented owners, so people often in local economies who care deeply about their communities who are really worried about what happens if their company gets sold to a competitor, really worried about what happens if their company gets sold to a private equity company who, who value the uh, work that their employees have put in to get them there, choose this path pretty off, often that transfers the shares of their company to employees. Okay, I have a bunch of questions. So presumably there's some sort of tax incentive or policy incentive that makes this the structure potentially more viable in the US than it is in Canada and B companies are incentivized to do this beyond just they think it's the right thing to do. Yeah. So so this is maybe the only bipartisan <laughs> issue in the US. It was started it was established about 45 years ago and has been improved many times since then. Every time it's been improved, it's been improved with the support of both Republicans and Democrats. When we went to the ESOP convention uh, in 2019 in Pittsburgh, uh, it was opened by a Republican senator and a Democratic senator speaking after each other and not being mean to each other. Uh, so really, really interesting. There are really strong incentives. So an employee-owned company doesn't pay corporate tax in the U.S., in almost all states meaning that they can now take the amount that they would pay in taxes and have that pay down the debt that they've taken on on behalf of employees. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. has decided that it is better to broaden ownership this way. We, we like this idea. And so we are going to reduce the tax burden on employee-owned companies. They also encourage owners to sell this way. So if you're an owner and you sell uh, to an ESOP, you can you can defer your capital gains tax and and then in many cases eliminate your capital gains tax depending on what you do with the money. So so two very important incentives for both employee owned companies once they're employee owned and in order to encourage uh, owners to sell to their employees. And and what what was it specifically about the ownership trust model that that got so much bipartisan support? I, I would I might have imagined a model that says, yeah, you give out some options to some of the earliest staff and the management only, and the company has the, the right to choose who and when they give it to, and it's just more, less fairly distributed might be more in keeping with the US conservative values. Time for a quick break from our sponsor. The world of personal finance is full of strange and wonderful rules. And honestly, it makes optimizing your finances nearly impossible unless you're a professional. 
Is it better to use an RRSP or a TFSA? Are you making the most of your employer pension and benefits? What should you do with company stock or options? How does your business fit into your long-term financial plan? These are just a fraction of the questions Canadians struggle with. The confusion can lead to choices that end up costing thousands of dollars a year. Kind Wealth can help you make the most of your money by offering high-quality financial advice. No sales commissions, no hidden fees, no long-term contracts. Just honest advice at a price you can afford. Visit kindwealth.ca to learn more. And now, back to the podcast. The person who invented this is a guy named Louis Kelso. And he was a, I mean, he's a capitalist for sure, out of California in the 50s. He's a lawyer. And he was talking about the same stuff we're talking about today. He said, I just, he says, I can't see our democratic uh, capitalist society sustaining itself with levels of inequality that we're going to reach if we keep going down this path. And he said, we need everyone to experience what it's the, 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 the uh, benefit of a capitalist society, which is the increase in the value of company share. So that's not the benefit, but that's a benefit of, of, of capitalist society or can be. So he, he talked about it as everyone a capitalist. In fact, he wrote a book called The Capitalist Manifesto, if you can believe that, in the 50s. And, and, and he set a bunch of these things up. So he's, you know, he was certainly not a communist right, by any right. stretch. He just didn't think capitalism was sustainable. And I think we, I think it's pretty clear that it's not uh, if you don't make some adjustments. And so, so he's been proven right on all those things. And then in 1974, the U.S. was establishing the Retirement Act. And he happened to meet the senator. This is, I think, how things happen in the U.S. He happened to meet the senator, very powerful senator named Russell Long, who was shepherding this retirement legislation. And he was so compelled by this, he just jammed it in to that legislation. So it became a retirement benefit. He did, you know, it was just, it was just added at the end. And, and then, you know, slowly, slowly started, slowly started to happen. And people are like, you know, this stuff is working, right? You got these owners who are thrilled, right? Because they, and this is before there was much in the way of incentives, but they were thrilled because they felt really good about what they'd done. And the time private equity wasn't, wasn't, wasn't running up prices and interest rates weren't, you know, 0%. So there was like, there wasn't all this countervailing stuff that made it that much harder, you know, and then the employees were, were, were doing well, right? I mean, you know, you had, we, we've had uh, in the U.S. grocery store clerks you know, who've retired with a million dollars in their account, right? And, you know, the, the idea that if you're going to have a capitalist society, right, if you're, if you're going to uh, set ourselves up this way, Having only a select group of people experience the windfalls of of a, of a sale of a company or the going public of a company is it, it doesn't work, right? We're just not long term. It's just not going to work, and we're seeing that. And so, yeah, great. It's great that a grocery clerk gets a million bucks every so often because at least you know those windfalls because that would have otherwise gone to a Goldman Sachs banker or you know or a hedge fund guy, and it's always a guy. It, you know, but instead it, it, it went to her and, and that's, you know, that's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I my direct experience is, 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 is in that situation where, you know, worked at a financial slash tech firm and, and was one of the employees, at least around the time that the firm was going public. And so got a bunch of options that eventually, you know, the amount of options you got as you trickled down from the senior, I wasn't a senior executive or anything like that, you know, became more and more diluted over time. And then that turned into from actual stock options to restricted stock units and became even more meager. And then you had this sort of just Right, regular ongoing. You get a little bit, a tiny, tiny little bit of this restricted stock units, right. and to, the value there is not about wealth distribution. It's all about we're going to try to align your incentives to yeah. you know, think like an owner. And it, to me, that just felt so laughable that these few restricted stock units. It's like I have this thing that replicates an option on a, yeah. <laughs> a not even a position in the company, <laughs> right? But an option on and it, and it's just like this does nothing to make me feel like an owner. I don't feel like I have any say in this organization, and it's certainly not doing a whole lot to to distribute wealth. And this is you know, it was a 
a great organization otherwise, but I think it's just typical of, of, you know, what, what we experience here in Canada anyway. Yeah. I mean, in in the U.S., there's an entire industry built up around this stuff where they where they do where where they can help companies establish that kind of ownership culture, and if and it and it, it it works often, right? There are a lot of companies in the U.S. Uh, where they've done ESOPs and then and then ensured that there was enough uh, communication to create that ownership culture around it, where where they did go hand in hand and where there was alignment and where the company did do. I mean, these things have been well researched over 45 years. There's an institute at Rutgers dedicated to analyzing and researching this stuff and these companies have grown faster they pay their employees more you know they they have created real wealth i think the average employee owner is has 92 percent more wealth than an employee at a non-employee owned company it's three times more wealth for people of color in the u.s and they're way more resilient in downturns. I mean, if you think about it, it's not a big surprise, right? If, if, if it's, if, if I, if I have a, a demand problem and my revenues are down and it might mean my profitability will be zero or I have to, I have to dip into some of our cash reserves, uh, but I'm owned by all the employees. What choice am I going to make? Right. I'm going to choose to dip into the cash reserves and keep everyone's jobs. Right. Because then I'll, you know, we'll be ready when we come out of this thing. Versus, oh, no, I've got shareholders who will tell me my fiduciary responsibility is to ensure that they get something at the end of the day. So we got to keep our dividends. We got to, you know, fire a bunch of people. Maybe we'll hire them back. Maybe we won't. We'll see. But the objectives are different. And so studies in both after the 2001 recession, after the global financial crisis, 2008-2009, showed that employee-owned companies did way better than non-employee-owned companies. I mean, look, the grocery happens to be an area where there is a lot of employee ownership. It, there also happens to be a lot of private equity ownership. All of the bankruptcies in the grocery industry, of which there have been many in the US, they've all been private equity owned, right? Zero have been employee owned. And there's an obvious reason for that, right? Because there's no benefit to an employee owned company going bankrupt, while there often is a benefit to a private equity owned company going bankrupt. So, you know, just because of the way it's, they, they structure things, layer on debt, et cetera. So, you know, we're, so there's all these benefits and everyone is talking about, okay, our economy isn't so resilient after all, right? Surprise. <laughs> you know, we've had three crises in the last 20 years. How do we be more resilient, right? How do we be more inclusive? And here in Canada, that's a conversation we're trying to have, but you, that doesn't just happen. You have to actually do things that create different and mechanisms for that to be true. And employee ownership is absolutely proven to be one of those mechanisms. So uh, what, what, what's stopping Canada from doing this? Obviously, you know, not enough or the awareness and or political will to change policy here. Do you think it's a lack of awareness and understanding of the issue? I think so for sure it's a lack of awareness and understanding of the issue. I don't I don't attribute any ill will on this one. Like if you yeah. think about it, this US one was done by accident and then they ended up with it. The UK has a, a better history of employee ownership than we have in Canada, but not great. And after the 2001-2008 crises, they were looking for new ideas. And uh, there was a guy called Graham Nuttall who has been, a, you know, an advocate of employee ownership in the UK and they, they you know, they they asked him to form a commission. And it was only in 2014 that the UK did the things you would need to do to allow for more employee ownership. So anyone has taken off since then, by the way, in, in the UK. So every time they, these things are done, whether it be in 74 in the US or, or in 2014 in the UK, employee ownership takes off. So I think we just haven't got to it, right? It ha hasn't been on the agenda. But it's not actually that complicated. You know, we need a new form of trust at the federal level called an employee ownership trust, call it whatever you want. But you know, so a, a the trusts that exist today all have problems. Either there's something called a 21 year rule that that you know, where you have to revalue a company and there's a tax implication for employees, uh, or there's a, a negative tax implication for companies. Or so there's a bunch of trusts that exist today that are not appropriate. And so you need this very specific employee ownership trust, and you need a certain number of rules around them that are not super complicated. We can kind of borrow from the U.S. and the U.K. And then you need some tax incentives, right? So, so you know, in order to ensure there aren't any negative 
uh, implications of doing this to employees, right? Where they may face taxes that they didn't otherwise face before they liquidated shares or, or received value for their shares. And also some incentives to encourage it, right? If you want to encourage it. I mean, and there's been studies in the US that said the the benefit to government of of having employee ownership on with reduced social insurance at cost due to their resiliency and additional employment and all of that and taxes paid by better paid employees far exceeds what they've what they've offered in 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 tax breaks so so it's those two things it's actually quite straightforward do you see any part of your work beyond this kind of research and this kind of report that you've put out as like doing the advocacy work that's necessary to try to get this on the agenda or is that something that you'd look to partner or and or you put this out into the universe and hope that others kind of yeah alongside well there's two things we're doing one that we've been really active at for the last year and i should we should talk about this because even though it's been pretty successful in the u.s it's not nearly as successful as it should be right so, so last year or in in most years something like four or five thousand companies get sold to private equity and 200 or 250 get uh, become esops that that that's the out of balance that I'm talking about. That ratio doesn't make any sense, right? Especially when you're talking about market value for ESOPs. The reason why that's true is there's while there's some debt available to ESOPs through a bank debt, they have the ability to take on much more debt and still be very very solvent, right? So if you think about a private equity company loading a, a company with seven, eight, nine, ten times debt, these um, ESOPs often have three times, right? They could absolutely support five times. And if they had five times, that means that extra amount of debt could go to the owner, making it a much more compelling idea for owners. And so we've been working for a year on how do we provide more flexible debt to that market to make it easier for owners to choose to do this in the U.S. So we're active in the U.S. doing this, and we're working with Canadian pension funds to do that because their capital is perfect in terms of its patience, in terms of the returns they need to fill that small gap or that gap between three and five times cash flow that we think will actually flip it. So the sales in the U.S. become much more balanced between employee ownership option and the private equity option or or, or sell to a competitor option. So that's, and, and we're actively engaged. We've been actively engaged in a number of deals. There's one right now that we're working on. Super exciting, wonderful company, big, big deal. It's over a hundred million dollars U.S. this deal, you know, something like 2000 employees, like really, really exciting stuff you know, market leading brand that everyone will know. And so if we're able to pull that one off, that will be really important. We'll start talking about that a lot. So that's the the work we're doing in the US. And then in Canada, you know, this was, we had some meetings at the beginning of the year where we talked about this stuff with some uh, folks who were really involved in in the Canadian political, We're we're not really an advocacy group, but they said, this is a really important idea. This is before COVID when we think about an inclusive wealth agenda, right? Like the stuff you're talking about, the bipartisan nature of it, the fact that it's good for local economies because employee-owned companies don't tend to leave, right? They, they don't focus on consolidation or scale or anything. They, they, they stay in their local communities, the rewards for owners, you know, the obvious wealth benefits for employees and the resiliency of the company. All these things are super important to a, a, an inclusive wealth agenda, which you know everyone is talking about you know, can you guys put something together on that? So we, we produced this report and yeah, now we're going to work on, we're going to advocate hard for this. And, and you can see its appeal across different political, across the political spectrum. I mean, Aaron O'Toole came out at the Canadian club the other day, laying out his view of what an economy should look like. And he was talking about local jobs. He was talking about resiliency. He was talking about the problem of so much of the economy going to financial elites on Bay Street. And and he was talking about unions for the love of all things, right? So, so but, he, but he's right, right? So, so, you know, almost finally, right, right? There's a recognition across the political spectrum that this inequality thing is actually a really big deal. And you can't fight some of these other things that we need to fight if everyone, you know, if the vast majority of the country feels like everything's getting sucked away to a few people. And so I think it's, you know, and obviously this is something the liberals have talked about 
inequality, inclusive wealth generation, you know, and, and certainly when you think about increased employee wealth, increased the, the, the Democratic Party is also super supportive and we've had interest from them. So, you know, we intend to advocate very strongly for this. We, we hope it will be on the different agendas of the parties. We know that right now people are pretty busy trying to save our country from a pandemic. And so we, we get that this isn't going to be item number one. But we want to start talking about it. And if it happens this year, great. If it happens next year, great. If it happens in five years, also great. Less great, but fine. You know, but but yeah, we're we are going to do what we don't normally do and 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 really start to advocate for this. So just to backtrack and, and make sure it's clear to everyone listening, this issue of fun, like pension funds essentially coming in loaning money to these. Is, it, is, that, is this what's happening? They're going to loan money to the ESOP trust, the employee ownership trust to pay a high, so that they can basically pay a higher multiple to the owner of the business who's selling because the private equity shops are going to pay him bigger multiples than he could get by selling to staff. So the multiple, so maybe I'll, let me try and explain this. I'm, I'm really bad at it. Sometimes I get too jargony with this stuff, David. So let me, let me try and, cause I'm going to sure. have to get better at this. So let me give this a shot. Um, so, so if an owner owns a company and the value is set by someone, someone makes them an offer, or there's another company like that's been sold, and it indicates that the the value of that company is called a hundred million dollars. Let's just use that for argument's sake. And so, anyone would be willing to pay him a hundred million dollars for that. The way the ESOP works is it should provide a similar amount to him, right? So, to so a hundred million ish. Sure. Call it. If there are tax breaks, you could see it being a bit lower. But you know, let's call it that. Let's say a private equity company, you know, says I'll give you a hundred million dollars. Um, well, let's assume that they have to pay taxes on that, right? Which you do. So you pay a capital gains tax. So my hundred million is immediately down to seventy-five million. Actually, let's say the, the, usually the 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 private equity company will will force the owner to roll over. Will keep some shares, so they can only really sell eighty percent of the company. So we, we have to hang on to twenty, so we get eighty. We have to pay twenty-five percent tax, we get sixty. So the owner walks home with $60 million. And these are like gigantic numbers, but you know, this is what happens. They come back with $60 million. If you, if you call it an ESOP instead, and he's instead he sells it to the employees, still gets a hundred million dollars. But in this case, he can only get as much as a bank would be willing to lend him, which would in this case probably be around $30 million. So the owner, you know, and then he has to lend the other 70 million himself. So the owner, instead of walking home with 60 million, now walks home with 30. And now you can see why, ah, man, 60 million is a lot more than 30. I'm going to go do that thing instead. Mm. If a pension fund or other institutional investor would fund additional debt up to say $50 million, right, which is very manageable by a company generally with that value, suddenly now the owner is choosing between 50 and 60. And now the gap isn't so big. And also that owner gets $50 million in, in, in a note, you know, gets paid back over time from the company that he or she knows really well. Right. And so there's a lot of trust there. So now the, the, the deal starts to look a lot better for the owner and that's how uh, a pension funds can be involved. And that's the role that, that we're trying to play. Hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, thank you. That's helpful. And then do you see that the same opportunity would be available in Canada then at that point? Would For sure. You? Thank you. Yeah. So are there downsides to this that mitigate some of the, the benefit? Or is this just like one of those obvious win-win, like there's just no reason not to be doing this? So when we talk to people in the U.S. about it, people who have been involved with this since the beginning, they tell us that nobody's against it. Right? You know, they say, look, it's a pretty specific thing that there aren't like, you know, you don't have people campaigning in the streets for this stuff, but there's no one who's like, wow, we definitely shouldn't do that. Right. You know, there are different versions of it that we still need to work through where some people will say this version of it is better than that version of it. You know, it's, it can be complex right in the U S. So that's probably the biggest complaint is that because you're, you're trying to protect employees Right, because you're trying to evenly distribute shares, because you've got a tax benefit, there are regulations around it. And so there, so you, you know, if you're an employee, if you're a company of like 15 employees, 
you're probably not going to do it because the complexity will exceed the ability of the company to handle that complexity. If you're a company of 100 people or 50 people, yeah, they do it all the time because there's just one other HR. You've got an HR infrastructure and you can you can manage it and there are consultants that help you. So I think that there's, you know, for smaller companies, it's not a particularly good idea, but that's fine. There are other there are other ideas for smaller companies. You know, there is there is the tax stuff. So so some people will say, well, we don't want our tax dollars going to this, which mm -hmm. is a reasonable conversation to have. Is does the benefit outweigh the tax cost? Because there's there can be tax. I mean, depending on, on how you approach it, there can be some tax cost. That's a reasonable and thoughtful conversation that one can have. And and so that that is a an objection to it, is that it provides tax benefits, you know, to you know, often to owners, right? You know, I think the the a reasonable way to look at it is to say which outcome do we desire, right? Do, do you know what are they going to do if not for this? And do is that are we happy with that? Would we rather have capital gains tax and then this thing be owned by a private equity company, or would we rather not have that capital gains tax and have it owned by two thousand employees in Halifax? You know, I can tell you where I come out on that, but you know, it's a conversation that one can have that's thoughtful. I think the, one of the important things to know about it is this isn't the answer for transition, you know, corporate transitions. I mean, this is an answer. It's not the answer for employee ownership. It's an answer, right? There's a spectrum of stuff from worker co-ops to, you know, ESOPs, employee, like the traditional employee option program. And this is somewhere in between where the point is you want to have all options available, yeah. right? One of the really interesting things that came out of the UK work was this idea that they had a monoculture of corporate forms. So there's only a couple of different ways in which you can organize a company. And that was actually, that led to bad outcomes because you needed to force different companies into different sleeves that didn't normally, that, that didn't otherwise fit, right? So it's like your public company, like the fiduciary responsibility thing, which says we have a fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders. Well, for some companies, that's not the right way to think about things in terms of trying to be best for that company long term for its success and resilience. So this actually came out of the UK as an answer to that monoculture problem. We absolutely have that monoculture problem here in Canada, and it prevents innovation and 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 other things. So, so you know, so we we would never position it as the answer to everything. We would position it as a answer that fits. A certain, but a pretty large swath of of situations that so far has really had mostly benefits and very little in the way of cost. The final thing I'd say is something people worry about and something that they've had to deal with over time in the U.S. are people taking advantage of the tax break and not uh, providing the benefit, right? So they they're a company, they are the owner, they know this thing is going down, right? Mm -hmm. So they set up an ESOP, borrow a bunch of money. Uh, take the cash out as best they can, and the company goes bankrupt, or something like that. That happened in the '70s and '80s, but they have. But but we benefit from the fact that this has been done for 45 years in the U.S., and they have slowly added regulations and guidelines that prevent those things from happening now. So now the the vast majority are what you want them to be. And so those criteria for like I get it. It's a, it's a tool in the toolbox. It's a particularly valuable tool that can apply to quite a number of situations, except real small businesses, startups without an HR kind of function are probably going to find it cost prohibitive. Is there any other sort of criteria that you'd say? That I mean, in tech companies should probably continue to operate the way they do when it comes to this stuff. This probably isn't the right answer for them. It's, it's for mature, you know, larger, not large, but larger companies with stable cash flows. That's what this is for. Of which, you know, we had a lot more of those in Canada before. We still have some left. And, you know, that's what they're great for. That's Sorry, right. I, I missed your question. You, you, were, you were talking about are there additional criteria? Yeah, it was really just about who, who is it best for. Yeah, no. It's been, and, and, and scenarios where an owner uh, wants to stay involved, right? The, the, this employee ownership, you know, at least in the way it's constructed in the UK and the US, allow them to stay regularly involved in the company to help in a transition but if they've thought through a succession and have it in place, that's also very helpful for these things. A lot of these things are common sense, right? Things you would want anytime a company was having a succession. But but the things I mentioned before around 
stable cash flows, mature businesses of, of, you know, at least, you know, sort of 25 to 30 employees. It's generally where it's best. Great. Well, that's really great. In the interest of time, I think we'll we'll kind of wind it up here. But is there anything else you wanted to to, to mention? I'm I'm going to link in the show notes the report that you released recently. You also did an article on Medium about the organization's kind of shift in, in, in focus, which I'll link as well. If people are interested in this topic, they want to get involved in some way, or like, are there ways that people can a get involved in ways that are useful for either for you or just for the advancement of this? You know, I, so I think I'd say anyone who made it through to the end of this after my my, my kind of long-winded answers, you know, this just just you're you're clearly interested in how we evolve from here as an economy. This topic of capital ownership needs to be top of mind uh, for all of us, and you know, and you introduced it as the generational shift of wealth or, or, or the, or the kind of the generational, the maintenance of wealth within all of that stuff is incredibly important. And if we are going to build an economy that people actually want to sustain and be part of, you know, we're going to need things that both broaden ownership and things that discourage the concentration of ownership. And there's a number of things that fit under those categories that, that, that we're going to have to think through and start to actually do, right. It can't always be a middle-class tax cut right? That can't always be the answer. We need more. You know, we are, we would love to hear from anyone who either has a connection to or involvement in the political system almost at any part. We'll talk to anyone uh, about this and, and, and kind of walk through why we think it's useful. And we'd love feedback on why people think it may not be useful. So, you know, you can reach us. I, I'm sure in your link, there'll be, there'll be uh, ways to reach us. You certainly respond to the Medium post you know, we're relatively easy to email as well. We've got a, a new website, employee-ownership.ca, which has a, a sign-up form. But, you know, in this advocacy, we want to talk to as many Canadians as possible about how this can be helpful and anyone who might be able to influence decision makers uh, at all levels and in all parties. We'd love to have that conversation. That's awesome. John, thanks so much for taking the time. It's always a pleasure. I love uh, what you guys are doing. And this is a really cool uh, new direction. And I'm real excited to success as, as we go here. So David, thanks so much for letting me ramble. appreciate it. <laughs> hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also, can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, Hey Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.